Okay. Hello, Bard. Who is Roland Pease? Roland Pease is a science journalist and broadcaster. He is currently the host of the BBC World Service radio program Science in Action. Here are some of the topics that Pease has covered in his work. The ethics of gene editing. The impact of climate change on human health. The future of artificial intelligence. His work helps to bridge the gap between science and society, and it makes a significant contribution to our understanding of the world around us. Do go on. For this second in the new series of podcasts from the University of Bath, Research with Impact, I'll ask just for a simple example of the way the new chatbots integrate text from across the internet and re-synthesize it into something new. Seeing that's me, I wasn't expecting a dose of flattery. Though Bard may have learned this episode would be about the impacts of artificial intelligence, AI, and wanted to keep on the right side of me. Across its many departments, the university works on numerous diverse aspects of AI, developing new approaches, applying it to real-world problems, and, as you'll hear over the next half hour, can we learn to regulate it and to trust it? So most artificial intelligence technologies are heavily reliant on data, whether that's data produced across the internet, like ChatGPT, it's data produced within an organisation to understand their customers, or data that's produced by governments for welfare, security or other settings. What matters then is what is that data, how is it used, how is it combined, and that's an absolutely critical step for us to understand how AI technologies work and what the effects they have. The take of sociologist Emma Carmel, who I'll be talking to later in the podcast. But first, for an expert opinion on the technology, Professor Nello Cristianini, who, well, let's ask another expert system. Hello, Bard. Who is Nello Cristianini? Nello Cristianini is a renowned Italian computer scientist and author currently serving as a Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of Bath. His research and contributions have significantly advanced our understanding of machine learning algorithms and their applications in various domains. He is also a passionate advocate for responsible and ethical development of AI technologies. So, are you recording me? I'm recording Am I forgetting who I'm talking with again? <laughs> you want to start popping? Yeah, oh the reason I want to talk about this. Well, first of all, ChatGPT is a thing that's brought AI to people's attention around the world. And I think the whole discussion has changed. Yeah. But. But. Exactly. What you were going to show me was a bit how it works, how you can train it, how it interprets. You, you what to... is very important here is to be honest. I hope I don't get misunderstood. Nobody really, really knows how this thing works. We know the algorithm because the humans made it and it's only two pages of math and if you spend two days, you will get it. And I understand the algorithm. But then we put this algorithm in touch with an amount of data of the size, you know, like 20% of the web, this kind of size. And that's human-generated data that we don't fully understand. And the interaction of the two gives the model, GPT, right? So keep in mind, the algorithm is called the transformer. It was proposed in the context of translation, just to translate. And uh, somebody repurposed it to generate missing words in a text. 
And the idea was we can train it on this enormous amount of books and web pages, and what comes out is a model, the generative, pre-trained transformer. And now we have the transformer that was only paid for predicting words. How on earth this guy can understand jokes that is not trivial. When I say we don't fully understand how it works, I don't mean the algorithm. I mean why it does what it does. I mean, <laughs> you're sort of saying it's a black box. It's a human-made black box. Stuff it's one step above black box. We had black boxes for a long time. This is something else. Because it's a black box trained on stuff that is interacting with itself. And when you start having a vast amount of text describing the world, we can't comprehend so that is where we are. We built this strange thing that was not meant to, to be an oracle. Somehow everybody's treating it as an oracle. Partly because we're socially trained because we to believe or mistrust. As long as it's trustworthy, most of the time, I guess, we learn to trust people. I mean, this is I think this is your whole point with the complexity of the systems being developed at the moment. We don't know what the connection is between what goes in and what comes out. AI is becoming too complicated for us to understand in conventional ways. Correct, that's right. Especially this type. But first, in general, we must start making our peace, which is very difficult thought. So here it goes. There may be things in the world that are understandable, they can be comprehended and predicted, but not by us. It is not true that we are the pinnacle of all types of intelligence at all. It is only our own superstition that we can't be bested Maybe we can, and maybe the machines can. So first of all, let's not be shocked. It's possible. The amount of data we feed into this machine is enormous. The amount of computing power we use is enormous. What comes out is a model with flaws and limitations, and it's easy to trick. But on the other hand, sometimes some things it says and it does that are quite clever. Now we're going to have to sit down and discuss what it means to understand. Well, I also want to understand how we deal with this because this kind of stuff is now being rolled out and it's not just these chatbots. AI is becoming used in all kinds of contexts around the world. That's useful, gets jobs done, but at the same time it seems to me we need to know what we're dealing with. Yeah, so AI doesn't begin in November 2022 with GPT. In the last 20 years we all have had in our pocket some form or another of AI. It selects the videos, it fills the email, it recommends the books, and we started to rely on it. So I don't know how many humans do you know that you would trust with reading your letters and deciding what you get to see. It's quite a position to read what you get. And deciding what articles I should read in the morning, it's also a position of trust and videos and so on. And putting my children in front of a person who decides what cartoons they watch, we started trusting this thing, and it has got power. And that was before being able to speak. And the way we built it was through these shortcuts, which are remarkable because they explain the benefits and the costs. We first abandoned, in the 90s, the idea of making some theoretical understanding rules, explicit reasoning, and we replaced it with raw statistics, cheap tricks, statistical tricks, because the other one we couldn't do, that's why. And then this requested data, because statistics must be based on data, and data is expensive, and we fell back on just harvesting data off the web. It was the second shortcut, using statistics, and doing that on data we harvest on the web. And then the problem was, what do we recommend to people? And you can't ask them to fill a form every time in a questionnaire. So you observe them, and you assume that if they click on something, they must have approved of it, they must like it. So here you go, there are three shortcuts. Glue them together, you have the recipe that makes pretty much every AI work. Uh, Amazon, 
uh, Instagram, TikTok, and so on, they learn from statistical patterns found in data in the wild and observing users. Why is this interesting? Yeah, it's gathering data about people. So yes, privacy will be a question. And yes, we can't assess the knowledge contained in a gigantic statistical model. So transparency will be an issue. And if there is a bias problem, because we suspect the machine is learning bad habits from people in the wild, well, then we can't inspect. So now it can be biased. It cannot be inspected. There are privacy issues. All this we do know. We don't know how to fix. I mean, what's interesting is what you're talking about here. These are very political and philosophical questions. I mean, you're in a computer department here at Bath. I presume that you started off as a computer scientist developing codes and all that kind of stuff. I still do. So I am uh, in a beautiful department in Bath, in computer science, where there is a lot of attention to these kind of social aspects of Bath has had for a while a history of paying attention to this, and they were right. Personally, I've been working in this business for 30 years now. I trained as a physicist. It was called in those days computational intelligence. It was machine learning. A PhD in Bristol, machine learning again. And to this day, I find myself closing the circle and reading all this learning theory and finding very familiar concepts and tools and ideas which have grown, but not so far from what used to be in the past. But at the same time, you know, your conversation, the conversation we've just been having is about the privacy, about the data, you know, all these political sides of it. So this is becoming a dominant part of your thinking now. It comes with age, it comes with being a parent, I suppose, and it comes with feeling responsible for your actions. And uh, for a long time, actually, I've been worried about it. Much less now. But the reason I wanted to talk to you, though, is are they, are we making the right laws? Do we know enough about what we're dealing with. It's very now the, the UK is still uh, working on preliminary. The, the, the Europeans I know very well because they're finishing. So let's start from there. It is very hard to be in their position, and somehow they found some sort of a path, which I found a decent first attempt. And their idea is we do not regulate the algorithm because that will change. And the algorithm could be perfectly fine within a video game and not so fine in a bank processing a mortgage application. So now we regulate the use of an algorithm. And they say, let's divide them by levels of risk. And the top level is called unacceptable risk. There will be some uses of AI, no matter how you build it, that will not be allowed in Europe because they are not compatible with the European rights. Give us an example. Well, currently it seems that remote biometrics and surveillance in a public place. Face recognition. For example. But in the European Union, this will probably be banned. But why is it unacceptable? Because a lot of people feel strongly that they have a right to not be identified without their consent and without them knowing and on a mass surveillance level. Eastern Europe and Germany have a history that they prefer the authorities to be more... But if I'm a football hooligan, there will be a police officer outside the football stadium says, hang on, you're not coming in here. And this is just a computer doing the same thing. This is just an example of why it is so hard to make a law. You just gave me a good example. And one would argue back what you described is not mass surveillance. It is a case-by-case policeman judgment. I've seen the data of a friend of mine who analyzes GPS of cars for a smart city project in, in Turin. And they're showing me that most people have two fundamental locations where their car sits. It's the home and the office. And some individuals have three locations. And one of them, he found out, was the home and the office and his girlfriend, which is not his wife. So knowing where your car is, most of the time, reveals a lot about your private life. It's obtained by linking together perfectly regular data about your plate, replace plate with face, and now you know where people spend most of their time and who they met. 
in some countries you trust your state enough with this information, I can see why some other countries have a different history. Okay, so you give me the top example. What's it with Yeah, uh, high risk. High risk doesn't mean it's discouraged. For example, uh, when you're processing a job application or a loan request or admission to college, you are in a space where access to these services comes with fundamental rights of equality and transparency and so on. So it is not discouraged. It's clear. The law doesn't mean it's frowned upon. It means it must be monitored. So there are obligations of these producers of the software to be scrutinized and be scrutinizable. Then you go down one more level and it's just sort of medium risk, whatever it's called, and you probably will get away with some self-certification and due diligence checklist. And then on the lowest level, the beautiful part is, you know, if you want an AI to keep the battery of your bicycle charged, just do it. The idea is let's not stifle innovation. Because, I mean, presumably the reason you were doing AI 10, 20 years ago was because there were things you wanted to achieve with it. Yeah, none of my applications in my days were in the high-risk level. I, it never crossed my mind. And this is the same when I read the articles of the pioneers this field. It really didn't cross their mind that the machine would be able to do advertising, political ads, or perhaps modeling personality of people without consent. That was not on the radar. Most people were thinking of autonomous cars and space flight and fighting disease and all these romantic ideas. All the good things. Yeah, and this stuff is still very, very allowed and not regulated and probably it's a very nice business model for this area. Somehow, because of just the way it went, advertising is a major source of revenue for this field. And advertising also comes with all these issues as well. And uh, I think we are going to learn to live with it, hopefully we are going to follow the rules and not find clever ways to get around them, which is the human nature. So the other side to this, we've talked about this before, is your idea of a social machine. So when I go on to Netflix and get a recommendation, or when I go on to Twitter and it starts feeding me things that it finds interesting, it's not just the machine, it's the, the billions of people who are connected to the machine. And that takes on a, a new life of its own, I think. Ooh, that is very worth connecting with. They are not independent. So before GPT came into the public eye, there was AI, as we said, and you face Facebook and YouTube, YouTube suggests a video or TikTok if you're young. And this is not just an algorithm. This is the result of applying a very simple algorithm to the behavior and the choices of 3 billion YouTube users. And when you apply a simple pattern recognition machine to the behavior of 3 billion users, something emerges, which is a decent understanding of what people like and dislike and so on. So when I face that, I face a social machine where every single cog is a user. And there are mathematical ways to say this formally. I don't want to bore you, but just like eBay is a social machine to establish the price of items. How much will people pay for something? Well, let eBay do its job. How much people like this movie? Well, let's YouTube see. They will tell you how much people like this video. Between two videos, given two videos, which one will people like the most? YouTube can find out. Given two items, how much will people pay for? eBay will find These are social machines where people are part of the machinery. I, I, I mean, the reason I brought this up is, does this also require a different kind of legislation from the kind that you're talking about that the EU's brought forward? Uh, now, the, the, this new social mach uh, this new GPT type of things, which uh, have a name legally, they're called foundation models. They try to not say language models because they know very well language is only one. There is images as well. So they call them foundation models. And they kind of slightly annoyingly violate the principle of regulating only the use because they're general purpose. They can be used for anything. 
So literally, strictly speaking, you should really regulate each different use of them. But they decided there are some common features that are worth regulating nevertheless. And so they added some provisions because the law is still being hacked. Um, so a couple of things are remarkable. And one I love very much. It says that a, an AI system, and they think GPT, we all, the one that makes images, will have to declare that the content was made by a machine, not a human. So when you go on the EasyJet website and you have an argument with a customer service by typing stuff, you need to know that this is a person or this is a software. They can't impersonate a person. And when an image comes out of some embarrassing moment of a politician, it has to be written on it. This was synthesized by a software. It didn't happen. If we require them by law to say that, it means they reached a point that are pretty good. It doesn't go without saying anymore. It has to be said. And it doesn't stop cheats happening, but it doesn't mean you have redress. We shouldn't print money. It's a law. Somebody will print money, but it will be illegal. Now, we shouldn't make fake images of the prime minister. Someone might try. Well, I think we shouldn't. And the law should say, don't. And then somebody will try, and then we are going to make enforcement. Enforcement is different than laws. So, overall, I mean, there are so many scary scenarios, and actually I think we hear a lot more scary scenarios and positive ones about where this is all going. My impression is you are a wary optimist. I am. I am an optimist. I think so. Also because I think we don't get anything out of uh, pessimism. I really think that, uh, especially I speak a lot to young people, uh, both the very old and the very young are concerned. And the very old feel that they are being kind of shut out too early. And they say, I can't use the banking, I can't use WhatsApp, and everything is moving, I can't even go to the post office now. They feel, why they shut me out? And it's fair. We shouldn't expect everybody to embrace this. And the young people, they're completely right. They refuse to be scared, because what's the point of telling them, in my days, things were better, in your days, they are better? It's silly. And if we take away any hope and any sense of you can make things better, you produce apathy. And apathy is just the worst thing you can see in a young person. So there is plenty they can do. They are probably those who will fix the mess we are making. And they will do it well. And they will make us proud. Nello Cristianini, Professor of AI at the University of Bath. I could go on listening and listening. But I had another call to make at the university in another building. Let's ask Bard again. Hello, Bard, it's me. Who is Emma Carmel? Professor Emma Carmel is a sociologist and professor of social and policy sciences at the University of Bath. She helps to bridge the gap between theoretical research and practical applications in the field of AI. Carmel serves as a co-investigator and management team lead in the Doctoral Training Centre on Accountable, Responsible and Transparent AI at the University of Bath. Her contributions are instrumental in shaping the field of AI and public policy and preparing the next generation of researchers to address the challenges and opportunities presented by AI. And interestingly, when I met Emma Carmel in her office, she was keen to talk not about artificial intelligence, but about artificial intelligence technologies. Actually, there's not one thing called AI. There are many different forms of AI technology. So we can think about something like the ability to recognise images, automated decision-making systems, the adjustment of fuel in a vehicle, or what I think we'll probably be talking about later, decision-making in public policy or in organisations, or the automated filtering of CVs. So all of these are technologies that use what we call 
AI in everyday discourse. And one of the most important things to understand about these technologies, the ones that are already widely in use, is the importance of data to their development. So most artificial intelligence technologies, or AITs as I'm going to call them because it's a bit of a mouthful, are heavily reliant on data, whether that's data produced across the internet like ChatGPT, whether or not it's data produced within an organisation to understand their customers, or whether or not it's data that's produced by governments, for example, in welfare or policing or security or other settings. What matters then is what is that data? How is it labelled? How is it organised? How is it used? How is it combined? And so on. Well, I mean, so to give two sort of completely different examples, a supermarket controlling its stock using AI probably does it much better than people can. And there's no problem with that. Yes. Pubs or cinemas using AI to recognise faces of people coming in and saying whether they might be hooligans or whatever. Yeah, I, at the other end. Yes, I'd, I'd be really concerned about that. And I would be concerned about that for the individuals concerned because these kinds of technologies are not necessarily reliable. But even if they were completely reliable, there's a question of what kinds of inference are being drawn about someone by their appearance or how their behaviour in the past has been. It doesn't mean to say their behaviour today is going to be the same as it was in the past. So this is, I think, for me, what's so interesting is how do you frame regulations that deal with AI? In other words, this sort of massive data processing but doesn't get into the nuts and bolts, does get down to the things that actually matter to us, like uh, civil liberties and so on. Yes. So there's at least two ways in which we can think about that. So one is to draw a distinction between AI technologies which are used in the public sector versus those that are used in the private sector. The other is to think about different types of use of these AI technologies. So you drew attention to this idea of the kind of civil liberties. So if my possibility of accessing a service, whether it's a private service or a public service, is being that decision is being made on the basis of AI technologies, then I would have a problem with that. And you might want to think about how to regulate it. But a much more extreme example is to think about well, how machine learning or these kinds of AITs are being used to determine whether or not someone gets a visa or whether or not someone is investigated for tax fraud. So if I'm making a submission to the government about my tax, while I completely recognise that there must be efficient ways of dealing particularly with, let's say, relatively simple submissions. Relatively straightforward submissions, it's the same every year, everything looks tidy and complete and, and all very sound. But one of the things that these technologies do is they work on the basis of what's normal. Mm-hmm. So if then these machines are then being used to make recommendations about an unusual case, it might be more prone to make errors. So if you have a more complex case, say you're working abroad and the taxier doesn't work and you, you might have just filled it out incorrectly, the system might then produce a false flag about whether or not you were trying to be fraudulent. And so this focus from the AI technologies on what's normal can mean that there are problems for people who have lives that don't fit with that normal. I think that's really interesting because they are, in many senses, very statistical machines, aren't they? And so, yeah, they're looking for the stuff that's in the middle. Lots of things go on at the periphery, which is perfectly acceptable, but 
it won't know. It just knows. Well, it varies a lot by sector. So I guess that's really important. You know, you asked me about tax, but it might look very different if you're working a different application. Well, see, that's what for me seems to be interesting is does regulation focus on the nuts and bolts Mm -hmm. that goes on inside the computer or does it look at the outcomes and say, we like this, but we don't like that? Because that sounds to me fluffy and rather hard to regulate for. (laughs) That's a really challenging question. I would slightly reframe it. It's not so much a question of nuts and bolts versus outcomes, but it's about understanding that these machines don't exist outside our existing decision-making processes. So if an outcome is wrong, then it should be possible for someone to complain about that or protest it or whatever. But sometimes one of the concerns about these automated systems is that it's very difficult to trace back why the machine might have produced that result or might have produced that outcome. So one of our biggest concerns is it's difficult to contest these decisions because we don't know why or how these decisions have come about because the AITs themselves are so complex and they work so fast and they work on so much data that it's not actually visible to anyone, including the decision maker, how that recommendation originated, which is, if as a citizen, that's really tricky. Yeah, you want to complain about decision and then no one can give you an answer about why the machine or the system came up with this answer. That's quite an interesting one because, for example, chat chat GPT people Mm -hmm. say oh the computer knows this or that whereas actually when I talk to the scientists the machine doesn't know anything it's just really doesn't know anything at all and therefore the danger is that if I'm flagged up as being someone to be called in and interrogated the people interrogating me might still have more faith in the system than it does in my narrative about my own life. That's possible one of the things that's kind of useful to think about in this context is that effectively And again, we come back to this importance of data. An automated decision-making system has been trained on previous decisions that were made. Mm -hmm. So you effectively introduce that historical pattern of how decisions were made, and you train the machine to learn those patterns. So the machine effectively says, oh, well, if you have this set of characteristics from this case, then the outcome we've had before is yes, this person is fine and they pay their taxes, or no, this person isn't fine, they don't pay their taxes, we should be concerned. But what happens then is the machine has learned that pattern. And so when it's applied in practice, you get everyone's latest, you know, the current round of applications, and it produces the same pattern. It says, oh, this, I know this kind of pattern, this pattern means X, that means that person's likely to be fraudulent or not. Most of the time, that's fantastic. It saves civil servants huge amounts of time. It's very effective. It's speedy. But it's important to understand that the machine is just producing a pattern. So it's simulating what looks like the correct answer. And what that means is that, well, it's just a simulation. It might be wrong. And so there are lots of examples, in that sense, of human biases, society's biases being transferred straight over to the machines. Yes, but those are not we've given the machine our biases. It's because the nature of the data on which it's identifying these patterns reflect the biases of previous decision-making. And one of the important things about that is that because it automates that bias or that problem, it amplifies it. So you effectively make those problems much worse. So... If I make you Prime Minister for a week or <laughs> well, Head of the Civil than, Service... Longer than a week, I have to you say. Know, are, there, are there things you would like to see 
put in place now that would at least buy us time to get accustomed to AI technologies? Uh, yes, definitely. So one of the things I would like us to pay much more attention to is basically understanding how they depend a lot on the data. So thinking about regulating the sale, use, labelling and organisation of data. So thinking there's a whole market in just buying and selling and relabeling data. So thinking about how we can regulate that activity. How? I want you to be more specific. Okay. So there are some arguments for saying that there are some kinds of data that shouldn't allow to be resold. We could require certain audit trails of where data has come from, where it's been, how it's been recombined. We could do a kind of certification process of data, a bit like we might do with fair trade, for example, where effectively there has to be a kind of certification of data regarding its quality where it was relabeled or categorised or reorganised. So this would be something like, you know, the loyalty card I have at the supermarket, mm-hmm. saying actually that has to stay within the supermarket and not be shared with, you know, someone yes. else. I don't so know who long. would like it. Who would? I don't know who else oh, would like lots that. lots of people would like it. <laughs> lots of people would like that data. Do you want me to tell you who would like it, as we as yeah. you've just said that? So, well, researchers would like it. They do use it. Governments like it, political parties like it, so attaching spending patterns to health data, spending patterns to socioeconomic data to look at changes in population. You can take your loyalty card data and then attach it to other consumption data like your Netflix or your Spotify or your reading or your other purchasing habits and then work out the likelihood of you voting a particular way. So there's nearly all data can be usefully combined for somebody to be used for some other purpose. And you'd like rules to anticipate the problems? Yes, absolutely I would. The other person in this podcast Mm -hmm. is Nella Cristiano, who's very interested in the idea that there are these social machines, or like social media, like Spotify, Netflix, which actually sort of take on a life of their own. And in a sense, the extended complexity of that makes the sort of things that you're talking about, very difficult. Yes, they do make it difficult. But the great thing about social scientists is that we wouldn't talk about social machines. So we talk about a socio-technical system in which the machine sits in a wider set of social relationships, whether that's institutions that make decisions according to law and guidelines set by ministers or by a CEO of a business... But one of the things that we can do as social scientists is break down the component parts of how the use of a machine takes effect. You see, I think Nella's point is that we've seen, for example, with a change in ownership at Mm -hmm. Twitter. Yes. I don't know how big the changes are in terms of the programming of it, but has resulted in a huge difference that probably wasn't in the minds of the original engineers when they were just saying, oh, here's a little notice board where you can say... I'm going out to visit my friend today. We do have many studies of technologies and it's not the case that the effects of these technologies and how they function is entirely unpredictable. So the introduction of what we used to call Web 2.0 felt really unpredictable because it was a new way of relating to technology and it offered us all those conveniences. But the wider social effects are also driven by the nature of the companies, how they're regulated, how they're owned, how they're organised, and all of those things can be regulated and controlled, and if they're not, then you get different consequences. Let me explain. The fact that 
Elon Musk is a multi-billionaire sort of doesn't really cover it, does it? You know, there's a kind of degree of wealth that is just so stratospheric, the rest of us can't really imagine. But his ability to simply raise the funds and buy outright a company which sits at such an important position in our political and social life is also a product of how we treat companies, how we regulate them, a, a legal decision a long time ago about how to treat social media as somehow a public town hall system. And that legal case that determined that social media companies were not publishers could have gone differently. And if it had gone differently, then these companies would have been subject to different kinds of regulation. And who knows, they might have made less money and those companies would have less power today. So the consequences of technology are not just a result of the technology, they're also a result of how we organise society. Humanity and AI, an interface being scrutinised at the University of Bath under the watchful eye of sociologist Ella Carmel and many other experts at the university, bringing us to the end of this edition of Research with Impact. There's one more episode in the series on research into tackling pain. We're amazing as human beings. We can cope with all sorts of stresses. But pain is a really particular type of problem that is hard to actually come to terms with when it's there all day, every day, affecting every part of your life, affecting all of your relationships, and with no seeming easy solution. And I think people can adjust to a life lived in pain, and all around us people are doing that. We're here to help those who have pain that makes it hard for them to adjust to it. A topic we all too often shy away from, but brought into the spotlight by experts at the University of Bath in the next episode of Research with Impact. And if you want to find out more about the projects I've seen in this series, you can visit go.bath.ac.uk slash research hyphen with hyphen impact or follow at uni of bath and if you've enjoyed listening to this episode please like and subscribe see you next time